All right. Well, uh, everybody, uh, welcome to class. Um, we're going to finish up our little discussion, I think, on the ascension of Christ. Uh, I stressed the ascension of Christ quite a bit in talking about how uh, this teaches us why and kind of how we can uh, confess Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper now, that that's not a challenge uh, for us if we know and study God's word and celebrate the ascension for what it is. But that's not the only benefit the, the ascension gives us. Um, if you have the lesson from last week, we'll, we'll continue with this. Does anybody need a copy? Yeah. There you go. Yep, y'all have it. Very good. I'm taking note who has their lesson and who doesn't. It's the back page is what we're going to be studying and looking at. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, I thought so. I thought so. Very good. So today, it's not just the. Um, it's not just that we benefit from the ascension with the Lord's Supper. What it also does for us is it does. Um, well, it does many things for us. And today, what I wanted to stress in our lesson on the second page is um, a few of these doctrines that are tied up to it, and that the ascension of Jesus gives us courage. It helps us. It uh, encourages us, strengthens us to be a faithful witness, and uh, that especially came uh, to the forefront of my mind today, I thought this was good timing that we're talking about the Ascension as we have, you know, Pride Month going on and we have now some of these athletes who are speaking out, right? Some of these athletes who are saying, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to wear this. I'm not going to do this. And they're suffering. They're suffering for it. They're suffering public scorn, of course, um, because remember, like I've mentioned before, the devil in the world has, the devil has his own closed communion, right? The world has its own closed communion that says, if you do not believe our tenets, if you do not believe our doctrines, you will not receive the benefits of being a child of the world. So if you do not believe the doctrine that is being fostered upon us, you will not receive the benefits of the world, right? So they say, if you don't believe our doctrine and confess it, like in Pride Month, we are going to take away the benefits of this world which are what? Money. Yeah, money, popularity, respect of the world, and, and power, right? Power, I would say. Remember, in the Christian church, we're not so worried about power. We're worried about authority, right? Because Jesus says all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. Authority, and what does he use that for? Power is used for one's own gains. Authority, you use your authority to benefit somebody else. So the world works on power, right? And that power they will use against you if you do not confess their doctrines. They will close off the sacrament of this world if you do not hold to their doctrines. So what that, <clears throat> the reason why I kind of stress that is because people think that the church is so mean and unloving because we have like close communion, right? How, well, that's so mean and unkind. It's like, well, no, actually, this is the blessed version of closed communion, because here in confessing the truth, you receive 
um, the medicine of immortality, you receive eternal benefits, eternal, the benefits of being a child of God. And we say that's by faith. So it's a, what do you believe? And the world says, well, yeah, you can believe what you want, but you have to, by your good works, show that you're a part of the world's kingdom. You have to believe and then good works. So what I brought is uh, Trevor Williams was this uh, major league pitcher, right? Who uh, got caught up in this uh, whole episode because uh, an, a, one of the major league teams uh, is hosting uh, Sisters of Perpetual Something. Um, and it's, it's bad. Um, and uh, I have his, his, his letter here, uh, what, what he wrote because the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence is a group of men that dress up like nuns, right? And they, they do this and they mock uh, Christianity, specifically Roman Catholicism, uh, and they mock it and they're, very, they're known pretty well in some of these circles. So um, this uh, team, the Dodgers, was going to host a night for them. And Trevor Williams, he did a good job. I, I, Trevor Williams, you, you need to listen how he defends uh, his stance and what he does. He says, as a devout Catholic, I'm deeply troubled by the Dodgers' decision to reinvite and honor the group, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, at their Pride Night this year. A Major League Baseball game is a place where people from all walks of life should feel welcomed, something I greatly respect and support. This is the purpose of different themed nights hosted by the organization, including Pride Night. To invite and honor a group that makes a blatant and deeply offensive mockery of my religion and the religion of over four million people in Los Angeles County alone undermines the values of respect and inclusivity that should be upheld by any organization. Creating an environment in which one group feels celebrated and honored at the expense of another is counterproductive and wrong. It is a clear violation of the Dodgers discrimination policy which explicitly states that any conduct or attire at the ballpark that is deemed to be indecent or prejudice against any particular group or religion is not tolerated. It seems that the Dodgers have made an exception in this case, doubling down that this group, which grossly disrespects and openly mocks many of the traditions and beliefs that Catholics hold most dear, should be celebrated. I believe it is essential for the Dodgers to reconsider their association with this group and strive to create an inclusive environment that does not demean or disrespect the religious beliefs of any fan or employee. I also encourage my fellow Catholics to reconsider their support of an organization that allows this type of mockery of its fans to occur. I know I'm not alone in my frustration, hurt, and disappointment about this situation. As, as Catholics, we look to Jesus Christ, the way he was treated, and we realize that any suffering in this world unites us to him in the next. So he handled it pretty well. Um, you know, they, initially they rescinded the invitation from this group, but then they, they gave it back and they had them. So he, he did a good job of, of saying, look, this group openly mocks Christianity. And so that goes against your, your own, what? Your own toleration laws, right? Your own organization of toleration. So, you know, he, Mr. Williams, he certainly could have worded it a little more uh, maybe different that we, we might thought, but this was a pretty good, pretty good way for him to speak up against um, something that he, he wanted to stand for his Christian faith, and he did. Uh, major League pitcher, he's, I mean, that's a pretty lucrative career, 
and uh, he's willing now to stand up and perhaps even be, be fired for what, what he believes. Uh, so uh, Trevor Williams, uh, go, uh, if you want to read that, that's his name. He's a Dodgers pitcher. And uh, I just wanted to recognize that and to say that the ascension of Jesus, knowing and believing and trusting in the ascension of Jesus, enables us and helps us to see that we can do this. That the ascension of Jesus is actually something that helps us be courageous and strong. Okay. Kershaw, who comes, moves, moves from Dallas and plays for the Dodgers, he also came out of this. Mm. And that group used the, the crucifix to pole dance. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah, that, and this is the kind of thing, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, people... Uh, are always were especially during the virus people were asking and saying you know oh is this you know end times and I say well yeah we've been in the end times since Pentecost right and um, there's this part in Revelation that says you will not be able to uh, uh, participate in commerce unless you um, get the mark of the beast or something like that and people were saying oh is is the vaccine is that the mark of the beat you know is that this this thing and, and we, you know, kind of the Christian's response to that, the church's response to that was kind of like, well, no, it's not, but you can sort of see hints of it. You can see hints of persecution for various people. You know, you, oh, you can't participate in our commerce if you don't do this or don't do that. So now this question also comes up now with Pride Month, right? If you are a business and you don't participate in the, this, this, um, horrible sin and promoting it, um, you aren't allowed to participate in commerce. And so people ask now too, is this kind of, kind of one of these, these, these signs and ideas? And, and the whole vaccine thing, I, I'm, I'm going to move on from that. I'm not going to talk too much about it. But now with this pride thing, this is closer probably to what revelation means and what we're going to see at the return of Christ. Because the, at the return of Christ with the dragons and the beasts and the harlot, right? These, the, the participation in commerce, the harlot is leading many, many astray with, by sex, right? And I mean, S-E-X, not S-E-C-T-S, but sex, six commandment stuff. And so the, the harlot, one of the things she does is she leads people away that way as, as a big picture of how many are to be led astray. So I, I tend to say, well, you know, any day could be the last day, right? We don't, we don't know. That's, that's for the Father to know. However, we do see hints of it. And for me, this is a pretty big hint. Um, this is a pretty big picture that if you do not participate in this practice, this harlot's um, um, doctrine and good works, then you are going to be financially punished. So is it the end all? I don't know. And that's kind of how we take a lot of the end times things that we read in, in the Old Testament prophets and in the book of Revelation is a lot of it is, is picture and symbolic language. And as a Christian, we, we aren't looking to specifically maybe identify these things. We're not looking to say, oh, I know for sure this is it, or I know this is it. But we do see hints of reminders that the end times are now and that any day our Lord can return and this is good. So the fact that the devil shows his, his hand like this, right? The fact that he shows this, this is good and should encourage us knowing. And that's what Jesus says. He says, when you see the day drawing near, 
straighten your back, stand up on your weak knees, and be ready to receive your salvation. So Jesus says when you see all this stuff, don't get discouraged. Don't get depressed. Don't tend to hide down and hunker down in in the church or wherever. Jesus says, I am at the right hand of God. You have no reason to hunker down or be afraid. I've got everything under control. It's all happening exactly how I told you it's going to happen. Nothing is outside of my control and my authority. So be of good cheer and be ready to receive your salvation. It's a pretty great encouragement. So as we might tend to be depressed or be sad, shake our heads. Yes, we can be sad and stuff. But let this remind you of what Jesus says. Let it strengthen you, right? Repent of your sins. Receive the gospel, hear and rejoice, sing, confess who Jesus is, and you will find joy that cannot be taken. You will find peace that cannot be taken from you no matter what. And you can be strengthened to do the very same things that this major league pitcher is able to do. But you also, you know, he's out there. He's out in front. God has given him this opportunity to confess him before all mankind on his platform, quote unquote. Um, What platform does God give you? Where are you at? In our families, right? The Bible says we must first begin with our own households, uh, our own church, uh, and then uh, go forward from there. So, you know, let's, let's not let this push us down and kick dirt in our face too much. Uh, let's stand up, let's rejoice, and let's continue. I mean, it's a great Sunday for this, right? Trinity Sunday. Uh, to know that the victory is actually being able to confess the truth. To actually say Jesus is Lord. That's the victory. The victory is not that everybody follows us or trusts us, right? Was Jesus victorious? Jesus was victorious, right? Yes. Did that mean everybody followed him? No. No. The victory is not convincing everybody. The victory is actually being able to say Jesus is Lord. When you say that, you win, period. You win. You have the victory. Over and over again, and we studied this, the men's Bible study on Thursday, we heard this in Thessalonians, where St. Paul says to the Thessalonians that Jesus is fighting and winning the victory by the breath of his word. So when we speak that word, when we confess Jesus, we are winning. We've won. The victory is ours. So we don't need to wallow around in defeat or sadness. Uh, Yeah, it's tempting. I fall for it too. It's disappointing. But... Uh, remember, Jesus has ascended at the right hand of God. There's nothing for us to be sad about, for this world is passing away anyway, right? The wor- this world is not our home. We are pilgrims. We're just passing through, uh, and we have our eyes set on a, a new Jerusalem, uh, a city where, uh, where we have Jesus and his victory, uh, not only in, by faith, but also we, we see it. We'll see it. We'll hold it in, in this very body that we have. So with that ascension of Christ, what are the doctrines? Where does the Bible speak? Why can we have this courage? Uh, This page where it says doctrines bound up in the ascension of Jesus, a quick list. Uh, I got this from another Lutheran pastor and uh, I thought it was very good. Okay, so the throne, okay? Uh, The throne of Jesus, when it says Jesus is up at the throne of God, Jesus sits at the Father's right hand. This is not a place, but the Father's authority. The entire person of Jesus, including his human nature, takes up the full use of his divine attributes. This is called the majestic, 
okay, and it's a Latin term, the majestic genus or genus, right? You remember back in school when you had to learn, what is it, genus, species, and... Okay, yeah, there we go, right? What was it, Miss Latin? Gainus, right? Where does that fall in? Yeah, yeah, okay. So anyway, we're not as smart as we thought we were. Um, we do in theology have a term for this because the, the, these, these genuses or these identities, right, of Jesus were getting mixed up. His divine and his human. People were wondering, does, does the divine nature, has it become less because it's, Jesus is also human, does the human nature sort of cover over the divine and limit the divine? The answer is no. It doesn't limit the divine, but the divine willingly submits himself to the limits of the flesh. Does that make sense? It's like in, uh, since our friends, our Guatemalan friends are here, well, Guatemala, I mean, our people we know Guatemala with. Uh, when, we, when we're in Guatemala, we, we did, did these plays in VBS. And even though, you know, we were adults, uh, we, we humbled ourselves. We submitted ourselves to play the parts of, uh, Greg, what part did you play that was most famous? Weren't you like a pig or something? Greg, hey, what, did, what were your lines as a pig? What, what were they? What did you do? <laughs> no, well, yeah, we want to hear this. <laughs> well, it was great. <laughs> it was great. They had little pig ears and little tails. It was great. But, but it wasn't as if Greg, well, Joni might have said it. It wasn't as if Greg was less of a man, right? <laughs> he was still fully man, but willingly submitted himself under the role of Piggly Wiggly. <laughs> the parable was the prodigal son. It was a lot of fun. But I mean, that's kind of a, that's kind of a joking way about a very, you know, a very serious matter of the, the understanding of, of Jesus, the divine and human nature, how they relate to each other. Uh, that Jesus is not less God. And that's why they have this majestic gayness or the gayness myestheticum. Um, that, that the entire of the person of Jesus takes up the full use of his divine attributes, but he doesn't always use them. He submits himself uh, as God, okay? Number two, okay? Uh, the ascension marks the entering into the fullness of the state of exaltation. So what does this mean? Jesus is omnipresent everywhere. Thus, he keeps his promise, I will never leave you or forsake you. Two, Jesus is also thusly able to place his body and blood wherever he wants, which includes on our altar and in your mouth today. This is also important to the knowing that Jesus unites himself now to bread and wine. That doesn't mean he's less divine, right? It doesn't mean when Jesus unites himself to the bread in communion, it's not as if the bread is some sort of lesser God that you're sort of getting gypped. Um, no, you're receiving the fullness of Jesus in the bread and wine. Uh, you can see uh, this beautiful picture in the sacraments and why a sacramental God is, a, is directly connected to who he is in his identity. Okay, that point number three, Jesus rules all things. 
Psalm 110.1 is thus fulfilled. So let's go to Psalm 110.1. This may sound a little familiar to you, especially today. Psalm 110.1, this is fulfilled. The Lord, and this is written by David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So here David is even prophesying. He is speaking of the ascension of Christ. That when Jesus sits at the right hand of God, he has all things under his authority. His enemies even bow down to him. Because it didn't look like that at the crucifixion, did it? In fact, they tried to make Jesus bow to to, to Caesar, to Pilate, right? Is that, or the high priest, right? The Jews, they struck him. Is that how you speak to, um, or what was that? Who was he speaking to? To Pilate, yeah. And they said, is that how you speak? You bow down to him. But here, the, the, the opposite is true. That when Jesus ascends to the right hand of God, he has his, his feet, right? Have you ever seen that? This is a little profane, so y'all forgive me, because it involves alcohol, rum, um, have you seen the, the advertisement for Captain Morgan rum? Yep. You know, the, the uh, captain, how, how does the captain stand, right? They, there was, they had this marketing campaign where he had his foot up, right? He had his foot on something, right? Um, this is what Psalm 110 is talking about, uh, that Jesus, his, his enemies are his footstool, right? Because when you have your foot on something, right, you're, you're showing your victory on, on something, um, it used to be that in, in, in battle, in the time of kings and queens and whatnot, that when a king defeated another king, if that other king was still alive, the losing king would have to go to the king's throne. He would lay down on the ground and the winning king would put his foot on his head. And that, was the, that showed complete victory. But it's even older than that, right? Where do we hear that in the Bible? That's right. When God says what in the Garden of Eden, what does he say? Yeah, he will crush your head. The seed of Eve will crush the serpent's head, right? That's the picture of it. He's crushing his head, his heel uh, into his head. So Captain Morgan, if you're looking for a good theological rum, Captain Morgan, is your, that, that's yours. But that's what it means by footstool. Uh, he's got G Jesus, when he ascends into heaven, his enemies are his footstool. David prophesied this and saw that. And uh, even in the scriptures, as we hear today, um, Jesus fulfills that. Okay, Jesus' rule is for the sake of the church. Let's go to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. Rick, can you turn it a little cooler? Is anybody in here actually cold? No. Can you turn up the... I was about to yeah, thank you. Now got yeah. Now that we're really rocking and rolling in here, we need some cool air. Okay. Jesus' rule is for the church. Ephesians 1, 21 to 23. If somebody would read that, please, nice and loud. Somebody who's never read before. Sorry, all you people who are anxious and want to read. Somebody who's never read before. This is your time. Time to shine. Ephesians 1, 21 to 23. If you've never read and want the opportunity, now's your turn. Yes, Going once. What? what 
uh, page number. Uh, in the Lutheran Study Bible, mine is 2018. Good. So Jesus's ascension to the right hand of God also means that he does this for the sake of the church, right? That he can send pastors, that he, can, that he sends teachers, right? To, to um, teach us this glory. So not only in this age, but in the one to come, he puts all things under his feet, gives him his head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, right? And this also St. Paul Right? It's not, it's not uh, an accident that St. Paul teaches us this because St. Paul learned this lesson in a very important way. This last thing that he says here, that Jesus Christ is the head of the church, which is his body. Because when Jesus meets Paul on the road, right, the road to Damascus, right, what does Jesus say to him? Why are you persecuting? He didn't say my church. Why are you persecuting me? So it makes sense that St. Paul really sort of understands this, this doctrine of the church being the body of Christ, his presence now, even here and now in the world, that Christ does this at his ascension, showing that his rule is for the sake of the church. Uh, I always thought that was really, really interesting, a really neat teaching, um, that Paul then takes this experience he had when Jesus came to him, and he says, man, this is a great doctrine. And it's in a time of persecution to give to strengthen us. Okay, number three, although Jesus, by way of his divine nature, already ruled all things, he now receives this rule and authority according to his person as a gift from the Father. Matthew 28, 19, which means that he rules as the one who was crucified. Consider Revelation, the lamb who sits on the throne. Remember, in the book of Revelation, uh, John, he, he's a, giving us an account of what he sees, and he says, he sees a lamb as though it has been defeated, standing victorious on the throne. So what do you think that means? What is a lamb that appears as if it has been defeated? What does that look like? Sacrificed. What else? The crucifixion. Yeah, that when, when John sees the lamb, he doesn't specifically tell us, but he, he notices, he records for us that there's something about this lamb that says it has been sacrificed, it's experienced death. And of course, we see this, right, Easter, when Jesus is raised, he shows them his hands and his side. St. John says you'll, you can still, it's still the wounds of Jesus are still there, but they're not a sign of his defeat, but a sign of his victory. So here... Um, Jesus rules all things. Um, he, the one who was crucified now rules all things. So it isn't as if Jesus' crucifixion was a punishment. It was, but it wasn't a punishment for him. It was our punishment uh, that he took. So it's not as if when Jesus is crucified, the Father is saying, this is the end of you. I no longer have to deal with you. All those things that God might say about us because of our sin, this is not what is the case 
for Jesus. God isn't doing this to get rid of him, but he's, he, is, he is doing this so that he would not get rid of us. And so this one, when Jesus ascends to the right hand of God, that shows the crucifixion served its purpose, did what was necessary. Number four, Jesus brings to completion the work of redemption. He leads captivity captive. He sits at the number two, so that he leads captivity captive is an Old Testament passage. I'm forgetting which it is. I've quoted this before. Um, but when Jesus in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it says he will lead captivity captive. So that which captive, that which captivates us, right? That which we are captive to, Jesus leads that captive. <laughs> Captivity, captivus, if it was Latin. I could just say the Latin versions and say I'm right and y'all couldn't disagree. Uh, or the Greek version, captivita. Um, but he leads captivity captive. And that's an interesting thing about translating is trying to get those words ordered right. But what it's saying is that Jesus will take captive that which we are captive to. He uses death to destroy death. Pretty cool. That God takes what the devil uses against us. God takes that and he actually uses it against the devil. It's like a trick that God plays on him. And you see this throughout the Bible. There are many times that, you know, evil thinks, the evil characters, evil people think they're having their way with the church. But then it ends up being what? Their own demise. Right? Like uh, that picture of somebody standing on a branch and they've got a saw and they're on this side of the branch and they're cutting it. They're like, ah, I'm showing this tree, you know, and they're just cutting them. And they're just going to fall and, and die. Um, the devil, when Jesus is dying on the cross, the, the devil, the world thinks, thinks they've got God right where they want him. But, but God actually is the one who's winning. God is the one who has things going. So he leads captivity captive. At when he ascends to the right hand of God. Number two, he sits at the Father's right hand, finished with his appointed work. Let's go to Hebrews 10, 12. Not too far from where we were. Hebrews 10. So we're going to be uh, approximately page 2,119. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verse 12. Um, let's read verse 12. Um, yeah, read verse 12 for me, please. Anybody? But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Okay, so here then we have um, Jesus sitting at the Father's right hand. Why would we use the word sit, do you think? What do you do after you mow the lawn or do the dishes? You sit. Yeah, you rest. Uh, this is, uh, you know, this is a sign of his, his victory. He's seated at the right hand of God. He's on his throne. He is seated. The strife is o'er. The battle is won. Okay. Um, number five, uh, Jesus is worshipped by men and angels. 
Um, we say this in our liturgy, right? With angels and archangels, with all the hosts of heaven, we laud and magnify thy glorious name, evermore praising you, saying, holy, 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 that we worship Jesus. And in the liturgy, we say with angels and archangels, that the angels now worship Jesus, uh, seated at the right hand of God. Um, that uh, the angels, they know, uh, they are present, they know what's going on, and they, they rejoice. All right, any questions so far? Anything that you want to add or anything I've touched on? Any questions or input? Okay, now we get into some of the more uh, things that we're really kind of focusing on too, that number two, Jesus is our advocate. Um, bullet point one, we have an advocate with a father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, right? And what's the role of an advocate? We're back on this page. Sorry. Yeah. He, he's there for us. He's, he's before the father for us. He sanctifies uh, our prayers and our works before the father. Number two, Jesus's work at the father's throne is judicial. One, he presents his blood as the price for our atonement. Two, he pleads our case before the Father. Three, he removes Satan and his accusations from the throne room of heaven. So Jesus being at the right hand of God, and is, this is a way, these are the things he is doing for us. Since we're in Hebrews, let's just turn one page to the left and see that Hebrews 9.14 And Hebrews 9 is speaking of Jesus as a priest. Um, and look what it says. Let's start in verse. Um, yeah, let's start with verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 9. For it, uh, Let's start in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So here he presents his blood as a price for our atonement. And what's interesting there is the author of Hebrews says, the blood of bolts, bolts the blood of bulls, right? If the verse 13, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ? So what was the purpose of the sacrifices? What does is, what is one thing here say that they did? The blood of bull, bull, why can't I not say bulls? The blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of heifers. What does it say it did to the people? Yeah, the blood of, how does that work? Why don't we do that now? If it worked then, so the author of Hebrews is saying that the sacrifices actually did something for the people in the Old Testament. It gave them the forgiveness of sins, but 
So what does that imply? Work. Wrong. <laughs> Quite the opposite, really. Because God, God provided forgiveness through that, but it had to be done over and over and over and over again. Right, but how did they receive that forgiveness? By faith, right? Not works. They didn't look at their sacrifices and say, look, we've bought forgiveness. No, they said, we believe that this is like a sacrament, that faith receives the forgiveness that God says they are getting from this. So the sacrifices in the Old Testament were, and that's the author's purpose, a big part of his purpose in Hebrews. He's saying, look, in the Old Testament, these people were saved by faith, just like you. God tied his word to these sacrifices. He said, trust that I say you are forgiven with this sacrifice, and you are. It wasn't as if it was works righteousness in the Old Testament, much to Rick's disappointment. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, in the Old, and that was a big part of the church, right? The begin, at, the first, at the early church after Jesus' ascension, the temptation was to go back to the Old Testament sacrifices. This, was, this is part of the reason for most of the epistles in the New Testament, is what do we do with this law? And Paul says, if you think that people were saved by works in the Old Testament, you miss the whole point of the law. You miss the point of faith. And Paul is saying, no, it's the same. You are saved by faith in the Old Testament and faith now. But yes, this is why it had to be repeated, because the sacrifice of bulls and goats, those animals were afflicted. Were they a perfect sacrifice? No. Were the priests perfect? No. That's the author's point. That's why the sacrifices needed to be done over and over again, because the priest was not perfect and the sacrifice was not perfect. But now that the perfect priest has come in Jesus, he has offered not only the perfect sacrifice as the sacrifice, but also as the priest. He has done for us what we cannot do. And here in the ascension, we are taught that this should give us confidence to be and call out to God and to know that he's going to answer us. Make sense? Yeah, it all works together. It's really pretty cool. And the fact that the author of Hebrews says, hey, these people were sanctified in the Old Testament. What are we also told? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So we put together these words and these teachings of the scriptures to see that when we see, oh, look, these persons, they're, they were the sprinkling of defiled persons. They were sanctified. They were purified. It's by, it's by faith. That's simple. <laughs> Very good. It's a beautiful treasure. It's a wonderful thing. So Jesus at the right hand of God presents his blood as our priest and sacrifice. Uh, number two, he pleads our case before the Father, and he removes Satan and his accusations. Okay? Uh, any questions or thoughts on that? Yeah, Abigail. Um, I really like this passage um, for, you know, talking with Catholics and stuff about the Mass, right? Mm -hmm. I believe that the Mass is like a repeated right. sacrifice. Yeah, the unbloody sacrifice. Yeah. yeah. Um, and this is, I mean, your explanation is perfect for that, I think. Yeah, well... Exactly. Yep. Absolutely. And, and the result of that is a conscience that's at peace. That 
you know, you, there, is nothing, there is nothing that you have to do to have peace in this life except trust that it's all been done. Yeah, this is a very good, this is a very good passage for that. Uh, St. Paul also says it in Galatians, once for all, um, yeah, this, the sacrifice of Christ is done and finished. We receive the benefits of that sacrifice now, right? We receive the body and blood of Jesus. We eat the sacrificial meal, um, all that, using all that language from the Old Testament. Good. Thank you, Abigail. Good point. Especially when you tell me I said it perfectly. Any, anybody else want to say something like that? <laughs> oh, very good. Uh, all right. Any other questions or thoughts? Okay. Number three, if there's nothing else. Um, uh, again, this is related as our priest and advocate. He intercedes for us before the Father's throne. Number two, Jesus hears our prayers and answers them. Three, Jesus sympathizes with us. His hands raised in blessing as he ascends indicate that his ascension is an act of grace. Jesus knows our temptations. He knows our struggles. Uh, and the wonderful thing about that is that he knows that he's, he can apply, he does apply the salve for all that we suffer. He applies the right treatment for all that ails us, everything that afflicts us, body, soul, and mind. Um, I'm not just talking about being sick, but also the temptations and the affliction of our souls. Jesus knows what we need for that as our, as our priest. Number two, Jesus here, oh, I already said that. Uh, no, yeah, the ascension, when he raises his hands, it's an act of blessing as he disappears from their sight. And then everybody is excited and happy. Jesus has left them and they're glad because they've been taught by the Holy Spirit what his ascension means. Uh, number four, sending. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, the comforter. Number two, Jesus sends the prophets, apostles, evangelists, pastors, and teachers from Ephesians 4. Number five, exaltation. Jesus restores the way for humanity to return to the Father. Lift up your heads, you mighty gates, Psalm 24, 7, that the Lord may come in. It's always been interesting to me. I never understood that, and it's still somewhat puzzling to me. Um, this lift up your heads, you mighty gates. Um, this phrase, this use of gates and talking at, at a, about us and things like that. It's quite, quite interesting. Um, number two, so all the talk of a man on the throne of God. So Jesus as a man exalted. You know, I, I spent some time on this last week talking about how humanity now is once able to be in the presence of God again. Number three, just as Jesus' resurrection assures our resurrection, he is the first fruits, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians, so his ascension assures our ascension. So that Jesus is at the right hand of God, uh, so also will we be with Christ. We will rule, we will, um, we will judge the nations, um, you know, all of this, right? All of this stuff gets reversed. This is his tweet, the major league pitcher's tweet. All, all of this will be reversed. It changes, goes back. Um, 
So you can understand why the disciples and people, when Jesus is talking about, you know, his death and resurrection, his ascension, and why the disciples and everyone was so anxious and saying, Jesus, is, is the return of the kingdom now? Is now the time? Is now the, the, is this now? Are we going to rule the world now? You can understand, I mean, I can sympathize with the apostles and disciples a little bit more, um, you know, my own personal thoughts, um, that they were hungering, they were thirsting for the kingdom that is to come. Uh, and, and we poke fun at the apostles and we laugh at them. Um, uh, but man, they, they really had their eyes on the prize. They, they knew. So, so then that also is why they were all willing to give their life um, for, for Christ, for the faith. So, any, any closing thoughts or remarks? All of this bound up in the ascension of Christ. Let it be your confidence, your assurance, your strength, uh, all these things when you're tempted to, you know, be depressed or down in the dumps. Um, Jesus knows the struggle. All right, let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have received your Son at your right hand, that you have made all our enemies his footstool, that we indeed stand with him victorious, that we also indeed will be in your presence for all eternity. We thank you that we also will retain our humanity, that you have cleansed humanity of its sin, that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And we look forward, O oh Lord, to receiving again our, this body of flesh, united for eternity to be in your presence and in your midst and with each other, uh, that we indeed now recognize this reality, that we have this treasure even now in jars of clay. We pray and ask, O oh Lord, we would be strengthened in a time of persecution, that we would be willing uh, to do the hard things, that we'd be ready uh, to call upon you in the day of trouble and know that you will deliver us. Teach us now by your Holy Spirit. Grant us this for the sake of Jesus. Amen.